Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Reza- now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I- Allison, where did you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I am thrilled to be in my studio with my guest who I'm going to introduce shortly. And Tony, this is our very first Monday interview in person since all this craziness. We've done now three group shows that come out on Thursday, but this is the first Monday one in person. And as with the other ones, I'm overjoyed. And I also feel like, how did I used to do this? Mm-hmm. But I already like this better than the other way. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah. I'll say that all day long, every day. Right. I'm, I, I can't wait to delete Zoom. I'm sure I never will get to. I'm sure that's just going to be a thing that's going to haunt my life till I die. Yeah. I can't wait to not be paying for premium Zoom or whatever <laughs> I am that allows right. me to be able to do this. All that being said, though, not to start off on a bummer, because I like the bummer to come later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do wonder, are we, are we out of the woods or are we headed back into potentially another lockdown situation with the variants and all that scariness? So for that reason, I feel like we can't say goodbye to Zoom just yet. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I don't know. I'm not even going to comment on that because I feel like last time I was like, we're, we're fine. We're going to be fine. Yeah. And then, you know, we all know what happened. Wait, when was that that you said that? Oh, I mean, like when 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 the coronavirus stuff was like starting to become more of a oh, story, like, and like before everything shut down, early and, March twenty twenty, yeah, like something like that. Yeah, I mean, I we've talked so much about so much being like once or twice, but it felt like a lot about the like sending an email to everyone on Thursday. Um, hey, would you guys be available to come, you know, come in on Monday? Yes. And then Friday, like, I'm not sure anymore. Like, mm-hmm. it changed so fast. Oh, yeah. Um, but speaking of, and I don't want to make things too awkward, Tony. Uh-oh. But speaking of going back and forth between in-person and Zoom, when you showed up and I and I said to you, uh, the studio's more set up than usual, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I wanted to ask, how come you keep unplugging everything? <laughs> I couldn't help but notice just a slight edge in your voice. Did I imagine that? Uh, it wasn't intended, but I, no, I have been. <laughs> I have been very um, curious because I get. I'm like, I understand some of why you would unplug certain things, but like unplugging everything has confused me, and I've been meaning to ask. Confused and bothered you? Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say bothered. <laughs> I look quite a pause 
there. I know. I make. I'm making extra work for you. I mean, it's not hard, except for that time that I accidentally came stoned. It was hard that day. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't that you accidentally came here stoned. It was that you came here and you were accidentally stoned. Yes, exactly. I think that was clear the first time, but just you know. <laughs> Um, yes. Everyone go listen to that episode. It's a Thursday show. I believe Hi Tony is in the title or Tony yeah, Stone or something Tim like and, Tim and Jackie. Were yes, yes. That was very fun. Yeah. As I explained to you, having to go back and forth between the setup for, uh, in-person guests and the setup for Zoom, I have to move a lot of stuff out of the way. And given the like cord spaghetti situation we have here, I feel like instead of getting everything tangled up, I'll just, you know, unplug everything and then wrap it up mm-hmm. neatly. Mm-hmm. In a way, I feel like that's what a true <laughs> audio professional like I am would do. <laughs> but when you get a druggie, <laughs> engineering and uh, producing your podcast, then you get a little pushback. Thank I've, God. I was simply asking a question. <laughs> oh, Trying to clear were, up some confusion. Were you... <laughs> Okay, thank God we have a guest to to be a buffer for how uncomfortable and awkward it's becoming. I am this is someone who I have been wanting to have on the podcast for a while because he has quite a story. Um and then his story got turned into what is now I believe the number one movie on Netflix. Obama is involved and it seemed like now was especially the right time. It is author, activist, homemaker, and husband of someone that my listeners know, because my listeners are quite familiar with Lizzie and Wendy Molyneux, because they've both been on the show. He is now married to Lizzie Molyneux. It is Matt Loglin, author of Two Kisses for Maddie, a memoir of loss and love, which is now a Netflix movie called Fatherhood. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um... Did you feel like I was right in that back and forth with Tony? <laughs> you, you know, I think you probably were. Uh, but if he asked me who was right, I might say he was right. So <laughs> it's really hard. But I guess your name's on the show, so I should agree with you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's just take. Let's just try what happens if Tony asks you. Tony, <laughs> do it. Um, who do you think uh, was was right in this scenario? You know, Tony, mm-hmm. I think you're right to be frustrated when somebody messes with your stuff. Uh, so you could be right, too. It's really hard for me to say. But I think you're both right. But someone's more right. And I'm not sure who yet. But I, <laughs> well, I mean, it I might be you, too. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking a question. I was just curious. Yes. I was like, I don't, you know, that's yeah. all. I think it depends on how you ask it. I and mean, you seem like a pretty nice guy. But that was like a kind question, right? Like you didn't come at her with like violence or I think, something, I right? believe if I remember right, I was like, Allison, why the fuck are you unplugging everything? Yeah, and then he was like, do it one more time and I'm out! Mm-hmm. I yeah. warned you without warning you, but I warned you with my eyes, like that. But you didn't throw anything, right? So... Uh, okay, well, I'm starting to side Nothing Allison super here. heavy. Okay, that's good. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. I think if you keep it light, it's probably fine. Yeah. Okay. Very diplomatic, Matt. Excellent <laughs> work. I have to do this a lot in my life, so... <laughs> Um, so I watched the movie last night and I was ready to just weep my eyes out thinking it's going to be a tearjerker. Uh, but I found it was emotional. Um, but I felt like they leaned away from the, the tragic aspects and more into like the heartwarming aspects. Would you agree? I would totally agree with that. I think, you know, there's a lot of sad stuff in there, but I think if you look at my real life or if you read my book, 
I tried not to focus necessarily on the morose stuff mm-hmm. because I think that's what everybody expects. You go through something really awful, you write about it, and that's going to be the focus for the most part. But I think what they did a great, really great job of was making sure that there was funny stuff in there and that there was heartwarming stuff and that the, the bigger focus, I think, of the movie is kind of what life really is, which is like moving forward mm-hmm. in some way or another. So I, I liked that a lot. And uh, I'm glad they didn't focus too much on the really depressing stuff. Um, how Well, let's tell everyone what the story is, what your story is. Yeah, definitely. So in 2007, I was married to a woman named Liz. Uh, she was my high school sweetheart, and we different Liz than Lizzie Molina. Yes, this is where things get really confusing. So <laughs> I've been married only twice, and they've been both to somebody named Elizabeth. Uh, so yeah, that's <laughs> it adds a lot of confusion to everybody's life. But I was married to my high school sweetheart, and uh, and we got married in 2005. In 2007, we bought a house, we decided to have a baby, and she got pregnant. And pretty much throughout her pregnancy, it was like just awful. I mean, she was at every moment was sick. I mean, mm-hmm. this was like morning, evening, noon, night sickness, like just all the time. And so um, she spent a lot of time kind of at home, kind of trying to figure out a way to work at the same time as being pregnant and eventually ended up on bed rest. And uh, after a pretty awful bout of bed rest, a lot of the things that they were monitoring in terms of her amniotic fluid and just, you know, umbilical cord was wrapped around our daughter's neck. They said, like, you need to come into the hospital. We need to monitor you 24-7. So she went in, she was in the hospital for about, I think it was about five weeks or so. Uh, I can't remember now after all this time, but she was in the hospital for a bit. And eventually they said, all right, you know, your daughter's big enough and healthy enough that we're going to take her out now because it's just getting to a point where she's getting so big that the umbilical cord wrapping around her neck is really going to be kind of a problem. And so we prepared for our daughter to be born. She was born seven weeks early via C-section and, you know, she was perfectly healthy, Mm -hmm. which is amazing for being seven weeks early. This was also in 2008 and medical technology has advanced a lot in the last 13 years. But, you know, we were super excited about this. We were also a little scared because we didn't know for sure how things were going to go. Our daughter got whisked off to the NICU and um, for the next 24 hours or so, my, my wife was, you know, recovering in bed and, and still on bed rest. Uh, and then she ended up having to, uh, it was, it was time to get up and see our daughter for the first time. And so they said, we're going to take you to the NICU. And, uh, I was in that room with her and, and a nurse came in and we went to pick her up and, and get her kind of situated in a wheelchair. And she, uh, she just said she felt lightheaded and collapsed. And, uh, and, and she had a massive blood clot that had gone from her leg up to her lungs and, and killed her almost, you know, instantly. And so, uh, I was in a spot where I didn't know how I was going to handle this stuff. You know, I'm, I was, it was 30 years old, which in LA is a very young dad kind mm, of situation. Yeah. I mean, in any other place in the world, I feel like that's an old dad, but I was still a young dad at 30. And now my best friend and the person I, you know, spent my entire life with basically was gone. And, at the same time, I had a I had a, a baby that was seven weeks early, and I didn't know for sure how she was going to be, you know, developing, how she was going to handle things, and so I was terrified, you know. And on top of all of that sort of like mental pain that you're going through, like I also had to deal with all this other stuff in the next couple of weeks, which is now half of my income was gone. Mm-hmm. My my wife actually made more money than I did, and we just bought a house, and you know, it was just like my entire life just completely imploded, and I had no idea what to do with that. It was just awful, you know. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> um, ha- you know, there's a moment in the book where she's on bed rest and she removes those like leg massager things. Yes. And a nurse just 
loses like freaks out at her um because she's so has had been so uncomfortable with those on and as i was reading i wondered is there what could could the blood clot have this is such an awful question. I'm sure you asked yourself, though. Could the yep. blood clot have been prevented? Like, did that have anything to do with it? Because you did put it in the book, so I wondered, like, is this seeding something? Yeah, I put it in there just as almost an example of that it wasn't It wasn't that oh, as the okay. issue because she put them right back on. Got it. The nurse made such a big deal of them uh, after that moment that, you know, we were kind of like, oh, shit, we better, we better follow these instructions. That said, there was not uh, – a mandatory use of them mm-hmm. post-op. And that's something that has, it's been a, a pretty big deal in the medical community since my wife's death, actually. and, and Regarding you know, her? Re- because re- of her? Because of her and because of, they want to make sure something like this doesn't happen. So those those little machines that they stick at the end of a hospital bed, I mean, they, they don't cost that much, like 500 bucks or mm-hmm. something like that. And then the little leg cuffs that come with them are, really inexpensive. And so, you know, if you're thinking about the price of a human life, I mean, this is, it, it's negligible. There's nothing involved in this, but from a hospital standpoint, these things are expensive, right? You've got to put a $600 device on every single hospital bed. Um, and then all the, the stuff that comes along with it. And so, uh, I, I've spoken at a few medical device manufacturers sort of like things, you know, I've done like some keynote addresses mm-hmm. at these things. And actually somebody came to me after one of these and said, I was in the hospital the day your wife died. And I was trying to get the hospital to make these things mandatory in every single hospital bed after every operation. And so at the time, the, you know, because she was on bed rest, they were using these things before the operation, right? Before she had her C-section, but there was no policy to make it mandatory after, mm-hmm. um, and since she's died, that's been something that, uh, you know, the medical community has really kind of come around and said, like, we want this thing to happen all like, I mean, this is just something that has to happen no matter what the surgery is, whether it's pregnancy related before the operation, after the operation, you need to have these leg cuffs on because it's just such a common thing that like when people are lying there that, that, you know, blood clots can, can occur. So, yeah, it was at Huntington, right? It was at Huntington. Yeah. <clears throat> I was telling my therapist who's over here on the east where this is the east side right the valley what do we call this area i don't know i just call it the valley yeah Yeah. i was telling my therapist that i was going to interview you and she was like wait when did this happen and i think she wouldn't she wouldn't tip her mitt because she's a therapist you know but i'm pretty sure she might have known about it too because she's pretty close with i think this she said she was close with like the NICU social worker who's been there this whole time. Yeah. And if it's the same one that was there when I was there, and I think it's the same person, I don't want to disparage this person anyway, but there was a social worker in that hospital that was, you know, they were pretty worked up as this was going on. And and, um, as it was apparent to them, and I was maybe still in denial that something really catastrophic was happening. They came up and um, (laughs) they had said like, there's a priest here that wants to talk to you. And, uh, and I kind of lost it at that point. Like, I'm a pretty nice guy. Like, I'm not a violent dude in any way. But I was like... Not like Tony. Yeah, not like Tony. He throws <laughs> really right. light shit at people all the time. <laughs> I I looked at the social worker and I was like, get that fucking priest out of my face right now. I'm going to knock him out. And um, and and I like that's not my reaction mm-hmm. to things most of the time. I really run from any sort of uh, conflict. But I was so angry at that moment. And that was, that was sort of like the first moment that I knew that she was going to die. Mm. When they start bringing in – I've seen enough movies to know that like when the priest arrives, it's like bad news, you know? Yeah. And so I was really angry. And I don't know if it was that same social worker. But I had um, – you know, we had been in the hospital for so long and we'd encountered all of these nurses and all of these people that worked there. 
And, um, and I remember, and I, I was completely out of my mind, obviously, but I went in and, and like, there was like a whole group of nurses meeting with a social worker and a whole bunch of folks in the hospital. And I walked in and I was just like, you guys, I'm really sorry. You know, like I felt bad for them too, because they felt responsible for this. And, you know, my feeling around the whole thing, and this is how I've chosen to remember this and how I've chosen to, to deal with it is that like just shit happens sometimes and it's awful sometimes and you can't control everything. And sometimes there's nobody to blame. And I know that if I searched, I could probably find somebody to blame, right? Like I had so many lawyers contact me mm-hmm. after my wife died. I, I wanted to bring even, malpractice. Oh yeah. They were, they were going to sue the shit out of the hospital. They were going to sue the doctors. They were going to sue everybody. And I talked to her doctor right after this happened, you know, her, her obstetrician. And, um, I, there was no way I was going to try to put her through this. Like she, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I spoke to her many times after this happened. She was in therapy because of this. Like she's never had somebody die like this. So, you know, no matter what happened, no matter who was right or wrong, it didn't really matter to me. It felt like the only way for me to move forward in my life was to not hold any grudges here. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't going to bring her back and like, who cares about money? Like it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. That scene in the book where, and that you just mentioned where like all the, the nurses and the medical professionals, you pass and you pass by and you see them in a room and they're all crying. Yeah. Like that was very affecting because so often we see portrayals of the medical community as like stoic and like this, you know, on Grey's Anatomy, this happens every single day. Right. Right. But this, and that was kind of my point in mentioning that I think my therapist knows about it. Like it, this event create, you know, really reverberated, very widely um, because it's so unusual and so tragic. Um, You just said that the way that you choose to see this is like bad stuff happens. and There's not always someone at fault. Um, In my own experiences with, with grief, not on this magnitude, but I have always gotten stuck with trying to find fault and with being angry. And I'm like, not a very, I'm like Tony. I'm not a real person who's in touch with my anger that often. Yeah. But when it comes to like grief and this feeling of someone being taken away from me, yeah. um, it, I do like, I, I really get stuck with finding fault and, you know, I've been, I've been told and I agree. It's probably like a control thing. It's like, well, if I can find fault, then I can prevent it from happening again. Or that it's like, that's stage four of grief, the bargaining, You're, which actually never made sense to me previously. But, um, so that's really interesting that you were able to get, to kind of get around all of that. Yeah. I felt like I had to, right. I mean, I was, I was here with this baby suddenly too. If it had been just me, I think things would have been a lot different. Mm-hmm. Like I, I definitely would have gone on like the longest bender anybody's ever had. Like I, I mean, I have friends in Nepal and I was like straight up, like, I'm going to just go to Kathmandu. <laughs> I'm going to like live there for the next six years. I'm going to grow out my beard and my hair. And like, I'm just going to get drunk for like the next six years. I don't, I don't care mm-hmm. about anything, but I had this brand new baby and she was my whole life, you know? And I, I, I mean, when you sign up to be a father, <laughs> you know, you hope and not everybody does this, I guess. But like my, my thing was, I'm just going to be the best dad I can. I'm not going to have all the answers. I'm not going to know what's going on. I'm going to trust my wife has read all the books and she's going to do everything right. And then I'll just do whatever she tells me. So when she was gone, it was suddenly like, well, I don't know how to handle this first of all. And second of all, I'm just going to have to figure it out, you know? And, and I walked in and I think if there were any NICU nurses that, (laughs) that were there that day that are, that like are listening, they would remember this very clearly. But I walked into the NICU not long after my wife died and my daughter was, you know, she had all these tubes going Mm -hmm. in and out of her and she was, I mean, she weighed under four pounds. She was just tiny. 
And I picked her up. They had to help me do this, but I was holding her and I just said, you better be the best fucking baby there ever was because <laughs> I, I literally didn't know how I was going to handle this. You know, it's like I have another daughter now who's two and she doesn't sleep or she didn't sleep. She's gotten better now, but for like six months, she just was not sleeping. And I like, as a, as a person doing that alone, I don't know how I would have handled it. Now I have a wife who also gets up and we switch off and all that stuff. But had I been alone with a child that didn't sleep, I would have lost my mind for mm-hmm. sure. And so I was thankful that she was like as good as I begged her to be you know, or <laughs> threatened her to be because uh, that, that helped me out, you know. So where are you now with your grief? That's a good question. It, it, it ebbs and flows for me. I mean, it's still present in my life every single day. I, you know, I'm, I miss my wife. It, it's really hard to like even 13 and a half years later to not have her around. I mean, our daughter now is 13. She is such an and amazing kid. I only know her from social media, uh, but there are pictures of you guys in the back of the book, Two Kisses for Maddie, which everyone should go get. Um, and that final picture of your wife looks, I mean, like spitting image of Maddie. Yeah. It just blows me away. Yeah, they look very similar. My my daughter now, is um, she's kind of a tomboy, so her hair's short and she kind of dresses like me. But, you know, if you were to put like a blonde wig on her, yeah. she would look exactly the smile like her mom. face. Yeah. 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 And it's incredible. So, I mean, I, I have her as a reminder every single day of, of my wife. And, you know, I'm still incredibly close to my wife's family. I mean, we, to this day, I mean, aside from COVID, we've been traveling with them. We go on trips with them every single year. We see them at, at the holidays. You know, they come and visit us all the time. And so, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do is make sure that those people who are important to her mom are still in her life as mm-hmm. much as possible. We've lost touch with some friends over the years, but like I still talk to some of her friends here and there. Um, and, and family, I think, is such an important part of it. It's really nice to be able to have her grandparents around, and I can just put Maddie on a plane and say, you're going to go see Grandma and Grandpa for, uh, for a week, and then she goes out and sees them. And it's so, so that's nice. But it also kind of keeps it keeps that grief going a little bit, which I think we all need. I mean, you, I don't know. You don't want to let go of this stuff as much as I wanted to let go of some of it, some mm-hmm. of it's really difficult to, to hold on to. I mean, the images of, of somebody dying, especially somebody that you love. Like yeah. I, I went to sleep every single night thinking and seeing my wife in that hospital bed. And it wasn't, and I know this is like so cliche, but it wasn't literally until I wrote my book or got that chapter out of my, my head that I finally could go to sleep. I was not sleeping for, wow. uh, this is about a year and a half in that I, that I started writing this. And I, I didn't sleep like at all for like a year and a half. I mean, I was getting some sleep, but it was like an hour, two hours here and there. But, and, but that, and that, cause I, th- you make reference to that in the, in the book, um, at some point, but I thought that that was cause you had a newborn at home. It no. was cause you couldn't sleep. Yeah. The newborn was great. You know, yeah. she, she slept actually, you know, uh, there's, there's moments in my life where I actually like I went to the doctor and early on with a, like a, a little one like that, you have to make sure that you're feeding them on a kind of a regular mm-hmm. basis. So it was like every three hours, if she was sleeping, I'd have to wake her up. And it was maybe like six months in, I went to the doctor and I was like, you know, yeah, it's really hard. I keep waking her up. Like, when do I let her sleep through the night? And the doctor's like, don't wake her up. And that was like for the first couple of weeks mm-hmm. when she was home. She's fine. <laughs> Just like let her let her sleep. And when she's hungry, she'll wake up. And I was like, oh, that's, that's great. Like, the, that's one of those things where like, you know, somebody tells you to do something and then they forget to tell you not yes. to do something and you just keep doing it, you know? So I was really happy to like find That's annoying. Just, yeah, it was super <laughs> annoying, right? I'm like, shit, I, I could have been sleeping. But but really, it wasn't it wasn't her at all. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, there was a point at which like, I don't even know what, I can't remember what triggered it, but I was like, I couldn't sleep in my room suddenly. I started sleeping out on my couch. Yeah. yeah. You, in the 
Um, in the book, you mentioned that um, while you guys were away, someone had hired like a, a, a housekeeper to oh, come yeah, clean yeah. up and then the everything was put back the way it was while she like the way it had been when she had been alive and that like made it so you couldn't sleep in there. That's right. I haven't read my book in a long, I've never read my book actually, except for the, Oh, I recommend book. it. <laughs> <laughs> I read it for the audio book. That's it. But, um, but that was like, you know, it was 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're right. That's what it was. It was uh, somebody had hired a house cleaner. It was really nice. People were always doing great stuff for us. Well, um, I was kind of going through this, but sometimes they would overstep a little bit. Right. <laughs> You'd have somebody show up at your house and do things that you didn't want them to do and move things you didn't want touched. And I think anybody who's gone through significant grief like this has little things things that the, you know you don't want people to mess with it's like whether it's a, a shirt that you sleep with mm-hmm. because it still smells like them or something i didn't have that exactly but i know other people who have and it's like somebody comes in and washes that shirt and it's like shit or like you know somebody is like well you're paying 100 bucks a month for their cell phone i'm going to cancel this and it's mm. like I've, I've had people who's you know lost voicemails from their husband or their wife or whatever and that's God. that's heartbreaking right like it's their last sort of way to hold on and yeah. Um, and yeah so when somebody messes with that even with the best intentions it's it's really difficult um was the inability to sleep was it an a fear of like letting go a fear of relaxing was it like a hypervigilance i think it was it was some of that it was also just like i mean you know i spent all this time with this person she in my mind was the most beautiful person on earth and and to be left with the the last image of her is just so yeah. like grotesque and just like gruesome and it's just like I don't know if you've ever had anything in your head that you're like I don't want to think about this anymore I don't want to do it and the more you tell yourself mm-hmm. you don't want to think about yeah, it yeah don't that's think of all a pink you elephant think about. yeah like exactly and that's all you think about and um and so when I was home alone with you know if if Maddie was asleep which she was frequently. I was just left to myself, you know, I didn't, I didn't have people, most of my family and friends are in Minnesota. So people weren't here all the time. Mm -hmm. They weren't here, you know, hanging out with me when she'd go to sleep. It was just me. And, uh, and that's a really hard thing when it's just you and your thoughts and you have nothing else to do. And you're in the house that you bought with your wife and and she's not there. It's just like the worst things come to your mind. Sometimes it's just awful. In the movie, um, Kevin Hart, who plays you, uh, is kind of thrown out of that room. But violently is too strong. I reserve that for Tony. But the medical people who come into the room when the um, the wife is dying are like, "Get out!" Yeah. How? What happened in real life? That's very accurate. Okay. Uh, mainly because they're just trying to get so many people in the room, yeah. and uh, so that there were several nurses, and you know, there's doctors. Everybody's rushing in. And I think there's some like, you know, they're trying to preserve your mental health in some way there. So you're not seeing some of that, but also there's just no space. So Mm. I got tossed out of that room really quickly, which is why then a social worker shows up with a priest and they're all trying to kind of corral you and like keep you away from that room for lots of different reasons. Um, But yeah, that was, that was very accurate. Mm. In fact, watching that movie back, um, those moments I think are the the hardest for me because Kevin just bless him in so many ways. Like as a comedian, I didn't know he'd be able to handle a a movie like this. And he brought the same kind of level of emotion and the feelings back that I felt like Mm -hmm. I was having in those moments. Um, and then encountering Alfred Woodard, who plays my mother-in-law, same exact thing. I mean, that happened exactly as it did in the movie, uh, in my real life. And it was, it was like, awful to watch that part. I watched it with my, my in-laws, my wife, my late wife's parents. And we were all just like, holy shit, this is like, yeah. this is way too close to reality. It was really hard to watch. Um, how come they chose to 
use everyone's real names? I don't know, actually. You know, when when we were talking about this movie, I kind of figured they would change everybody's mm-hmm. names. Because they do change a lot of elements. Not a, like it's the same story, but there are details that are changed. Yeah, there's a lot of things that were changed, and and they preserve the names. For example, of, Kevin Hart is very short. He is very short. I am slightly taller than him, yeah. and he has better abs than I do. <laughs> Otherwise, the, otherwise, your spitting image. Yeah, the differences are the end at that point. But and he's funnier, I guess. But you know, like yeah. So there were there were a lot of liberties taken, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the fact that like if you if you read my book. And you watch a movie, you know, my book doesn't translate well to a movie. It's like basically Sony and everybody involved in this could have pretended like this was somebody else's story and not paid me. And I never would have yeah. guessed it was me. Because, I mean, this stuff happens oh, time, from time bastards. to time. Yeah. And I never would have I never would have been the like the wiser. I would have mm-hmm. just been like, oh, man, it must be some other guy's story. <laughs> You're like, that it's so similar to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, I, those things get in happened. touch with him. Yeah, yeah. I, gotta, I gotta sue somebody. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things where like I think that they decided that they wanted some, they wanted like a tribute to us in a lot of ways mm. because everybody I talked to throughout this process, you know, from from all of the producers I spoke to from the beginning to the screenwriter to the director to everybody who's involved in this movie, the actors, everybody, they said we want to make a movie that your family is going to be proud of. And I think because of so many of the changes that were present there, they wanted to use our real names mm. because the the most accurate part of the movie, I think, resol- revolves kind of around me and Maddie and my late wife, Liz, and then Lizzie, who's actually in the movie as well. And then from there, everybody else's names got changed. So my in-laws' okay. names got changed. Oh, right. Marion was yeah. not, yeah. And my my mother-in-law in that movie is not at all like my mm-hmm. mother-in-law in real life. She's like a super nice lady and she was never overbearing and never asked me to do anything like give up my child. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, she got to be played by Alfred Woodard. So like, can't, it's like <laughs> they could have made her a murderer and, uh, and she would still have to be happy because it's, it's Alfred Woodard. Like right. just, you have to deal with that. Um, and yeah, my dad was like dead in the movie. Basically they allude to him being like a drunk and like a philanderer, mm-hmm. uh, and and he's like he's not that way. I mean, he's right. been married several times, but he's not like a bad dude like they they made in the movie. So um, yeah, there were a few things that were changed, and some people probably aren't happy about him. But the good news is I got to like warn my close family and be like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> How many times has your dad been married? Uh, four. He's on his fourth right now, actually. How's it going? Seems fine. I uh, I think this one's going to stick. This has been his longest uh, marriage. He doesn't have any children with this woman, so I think that helps too. Mm. And uh, you know, all of his kids are grown, so. You know, Matt, when you were talking about the trouble you had sleeping, uh, it occurred to me that perhaps if you had had a really comfortable mattress, things might have been different. I don't want to, you know, gloss over what was a real rough time for you, but I'm just saying, doesn't it seem like the world's against us from getting a good night's sleep this time of year, Tony? Yeah. But when you have a purple mattress, you can sleep cool and comfortable, no matter what the world throws at you. That's because only purple mattresses have the grid. And normally I have a little sample. Oh, there it is over there next to right there. Thank you, Matt. Matt is bringing it even though there's not a video component of this particular episode. But go to past episodes, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen, and maybe you'll land on one where I show the grid to the camera. Um, I just like to touch it and feel it's just so it's cool and it feels good in my hands. Um, 
so the grid is a unique ventilated design that allows air to flow through and to help you sleep cool, even when it feels like a thousand degrees out, which I think it is. I think it was a thousand degrees so. in the Arctic. Yeah, that's not concerning. And the grid is amazingly supportive for your back and legs while cushioning your shoulders, neck and hips, no matter how you sleep. Unlike memory foam. The grid bounces back as you move and shift, so you never get that I'm stuck feeling like you do with memory foam. Try your purple mattress risk-free with free shippings and returns. Financing is available, too. Purple is comfort reinvented. Right now, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. Go to purple.com slash bestfriend10 and use promo code bestfriend10. That's purple.com slash bestfriend10. Promo code bestfriend10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Purple dot com slash best friend 10 promo code best friend 10 terms apply so matt um could you tell me about the writing process itself you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna here's what i'm gonna do because i'm a professional i'm gonna throw like three questions at you go for it okay I am. I want to know about the writing process of the book and how that got turned into a movie. I want to know about you meeting lizzie molyneux uh and like and falling in love again and sort of what that's been like. Uh, and then also about how much you were involved in the making of the movie, because I know from reading the book and watching the movie now that like there's a compressed timeline. So they had to be getting info from you about what happened in your life after. Yes. Take it away. All right. I'll start with the book. Okay. So I don't know how to write. Uh, the first lines in this book are actually, I am not a writer because I literally didn't know what I was doing. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd been writing a blog before my wife died, actually. And it was mainly to, I was just posting photos of like my travels. I was traveling for work a lot and was living in India for a bit here and there. And so you worked for Yahoo. Right? I did work for Yahoo yeah. for a while. And, um, and so, yeah, so I was just posting photos that I thought that were interesting. This is before social media existed, like no Flickr before that or Instagram now and all that stuff. So it was just a website to dump photos and show my friends what I was doing. Yes. You know? I found sort of the shell. I am not, I was, it said I did not have permission. I was not invited to read the post, ah. but I found sort of the frame of it. And it was such a fun trip down memory lane to see like all the other blogs linked on the side, yep. the way it used to be yeah I, i've uh i decided before the movie came out i was like you know people are gonna look for me yeah. again and i know people can still find a lot of stuff but i was like uh you know that's like a relic of the mid 2000s i was like eh, let's just get rid of this mm-hmm. shit for now um maybe i'll bring it back but i anyway i had that and then i was writing uh to my family via the blog just as my wife was going through mm-hmm. everything and, and just wanted a repository so they could come read and see what was happening and that we didn't have to take phone calls we have both have rather large families and people were just calling us nonstop. So then after she died, I was still writing as a way to kind of keep them updated Mm -hmm. and also as kind of like a diary for my daughter. You know, I wanted her to be able to go back and read this stuff because I knew I would forget it. I think just parents in general kind of forget stuff. You know, they forget the first steps and the first haircut and all that stuff. I am shocked how much I – so many things with Elliot, I'm like, I don't – how could I ever forget this? And just two years later, I have Owen and I'm like, I cannot remember anything about – I should have written it down. Go yeah, ahead. did you have your baby? You didn't like fill out that baby book that you got for your one of your showers. I'm sure. <laughs> I did not. I do have notes here and there, That's but good. I mean, in general, if someone said like, "When did he start talking?" I'd be like, "Ugh, I don't, I don't remember which month." Yeah, it's super embarrassing because my yeah. kid asks me that all the time. She's like, "When did I take my first steps?" I'm like, well, "I think I remember that, but I don't remember what you said." For- <laughs> so anyway, it gets bad. But I do have it written down somewhere, and it's archived, and she can read it someday mm-hmm. when when I'm dead or whatever. But um, you know. It- that's how it kind of started. And so this blog was going for a bit and then, um, you know, it was weird. And in 2008, 
that's what a lot of people were doing this stuff. I had no intention. And I, I guess I was pretty naive about it. I didn't think anybody would actually read this thing. I was like, well, this will be for my family and my friends. And then suddenly, like I was seeing these stats, which I wasn't paying attention to, but suddenly I'm getting like 40,000 page views and suddenly mm-hmm. I'm getting 800,000 page views. Now I've got a million page. It's like, holy shit, what's going on here? So people were just reading it nonstop. And when you do anything that, that kind of becomes somewhat popular or viral or whatever you want to call it nowadays, um, like vultures start to circle a little bit, you know, it's like somebody out there thinks they can make money. Mm-hmm. And that was not my intention. I, I don't, I didn't have an idea to write a book. I didn't think like, this is what I'm going to do. Like mm-hmm. my wife is going to die and I'm going to write a book and I'm going to get like super famous in like some small circle. It was not it. I, I had no intention. I, I got an offer to write a book about a month and a half after, after she died. Wow. And it was through a friend of hers who she went to high school with who knew somebody uh, through her college who worked at a publishing house. And I was like, I straight up just said like, no way. Like I, there's no way I can do this. I don't mm. want to do this. I want nothing to do with this. And did it said, feel icky to you? The idea Yeah, it felt super gross. I mm. mean, it, you know, you can, you can like, even in the midst of like the worst moment in your life, you can feel like exploitation in a lot of ways. Like I can think about the time, right after my wife died, I suddenly started getting all this free formula and diapers in the mail. And I was like, Oh, that's really nice. And then I saw who it came from and it was from my friend's dad. And I was like, Oh, that, that was really nice of him. And then I realized, Holy shit, this guy was on the board at Huntington. Mm. He was trying to keep me from suing them. And, and again, I had no intention of suing anybody, but this preemptive, like, Hey, right. we're going to give you all this like necessary shit to keep your baby alive so that you don't come after yeah. us was kind of gross. Mm-hmm. And it made me kind of like really not feel good about things. But yeah. same kind of thing with this. It's like when people are reaching out and saying like, hey, why don't you write a book about your, your wife dying? It's like, well, no, I, that, that seems awful. I don't mm-hmm. – first of all, I don't like to write. I, I fucking hate writing. I really do. Um, and so I wanted nothing to do with it. As time continued to pass, I ended up on Rachel Ray's show. I ended up on Oprah. And you know when that happens – I was in People Magazine. Like when that happens – I mean, you can't even imagine the number of people that start coming after you. And mm-hmm. again, especially at that time in the world in 2008, there was nobody bigger than Oprah, right? Like, Did you have misgivings about going on those shows at all? Yeah, totally. Um, the Rachel Ray thing, I was, I went to do something with, um, I'm trying to think who it was. There was a, it was a UN group that was doing some vaccination stuff and they were doing some stuff like getting, you know, they're working with Pampers. So there was kind of this charitable aspect to it where I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'll go because I'm going to get involved. I actually met Salma Hayek and we went to like this whole, like it was like a really weird day, but a lot of it was charity related. Mm -hmm. Um, I went on Oprah because I just started a nonprofit organization named after my wife. It's called the Liz Loglin foundation. And we give money to widowed families with kids. Well, I just started it. We hadn't even gotten our 501c3 designation from from the government yet. And when Oprah called, I was like, listen, I, it was literally the one-year anniversary of my, my baby being born and my wife's death. I'd t- taken off to Mexico with a couple of my best friends and, and their family. And we just like – I was like, I'm going to just tune out for a week mm-hmm. or two and we're just going to relax. And then Oprah calls and they're it like was, – Was it actually Oprah? No. Okay. No, it wasn't even Gail. It kind of sucked. Uh, <laughs> it was like somebody else. <laughs> was it know? Stedman? <laughs> you know, he doesn't even get to touch the phone anymore. Uh, I don't think back then he even was allowed. So uh, it was, was it her like, best friend, Prince Harry. It might have been. It was like some producer who disguised Dr. his Phil. voice and it was crazy. And so they were like, we're going to we want to like interview you. And I was like, OK, that's fine. And so I was like I said, I was down in Mexico. The infrastructure sucked. I couldn't get on. Uh, I couldn't get like Wi-Fi that was going to mm-hmm. be good enough or even like a plugged in connection. And so Oprah's like, well, we need you to come to, to Chicago. And not Oprah again, but somebody at Oprah was like, we need you to come to Chicago. I was like, 
I'm in Mexico. And they're like, we're going to fly you first class and your baby. And we're just going to fly you back to Chicago. You'll be there for 24 hours. And then you just fly back to Mexico. They and couldn't just wait till you were back. That's what I was like. Can you just like wait? Like, yeah. I, and my trip was like, they're like, we're going days. to air in 10 minutes. So we're going <laughs> to, we're going to need you here right now. It was super weird, but it's like, it's also like Oprah. Yeah. And because I just started this nonprofit, I was like, you know, this is really good exposure. Mm-hmm. Like if, even if we don't have our 501c3, we can start getting donations coming in. And those, if they're made in the same calendar year that you get your designation, they're still tax deductible for everybody. And so I thought, okay, I, I have to do this for this thing that I've created. I want to make sure that we're making a difference in the lives mm-hmm. of all these families. So I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to go. So I told my friends, I'm like, sorry, you guys are going to hang out in Mexico for a couple of days. You get this condo to yourself, like enjoy it. I'll be back. And then we'll spend two days together and you'll go home. Um, and so, yeah, so I flew to Chicago, did the whole thing. I was got, Maddie with you? Maddie was with me. And they were like, <laughs> it was like, I think this is like, I'm probably not even legally supposed to talk about this, but I'm going to. It's been a long time. I got to the the show and they were like, okay, well, you know, it's really hard to have kids and dogs on TV. So we're not going to have Maddie come out. You know, she was a year old. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we'll keep her. Somebody in the green room will watch her or whatever. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Somebody's just going to watch my kid. Um, and they're like, also, you can't talk about your foundation what and i was like the, I, I straight up told them the con, my, my one condition for coming was that i could just i could talk about this mm-hmm. right i said i wanted to make sure that this was the whole reason i was coming because it, it's it's the one year anniversary of my wife's death it this, this feels to me like exploitation of the worst kind and i don't want the focus to be on me we can talk about my story we can talk about things that have happened to my family but i want to pivot that to something good you know you said that to to the person in the moment that's good oh i straight up said it to this this producer yeah. and i was like this i i told him i'm like this is bullshit and mm-hmm. like if i were a bigger asshole i'd walk out of here right now but i was like maybe something will happen here and, and oprah did like when i finally got out there and everything they were kind of like oh yeah and he started this foundation to help family didn't mention the name they didn't mm-hmm. put it on any of the you know any of the website or anything like that it was just like they just kind of said it and if somebody like looked for it pretty hard, they could find it. But it was just kind of like, that sucks. You know, that really sucks. And then another segment, they had like a guy come out with all of – he had like six kids and a dog. And I was like, why? <laughs> you know, so it was like all yeah. the stuff they told me. That, and then suddenly this guy with his kid and, and kids and dog show up. And I'm like, hmm. why can't I bring my kid out? Anyway, it was just like a really frustrating experience. And yeah. so, like I said, it's just people start circling when the stuff happens. And so, you know – after Oprah, I was getting calls from all these agents. I mean, like literally name every agency in, like in the world, mm. like WME was calling me. I was getting, I mean, I literally WME, I was like, who, like, what is that? You know, I, uh, I thought it was like a cigarette. No. Yeah. Cause it's, it was William Morris. That was right? Philip Morris. I, I thought it was Philip Morris. I'm like, why is a cigarette company trying to call me? You know, like I'm as far outside of the world of publishing and like Hollywood as anybody mm-hmm. could possibly be, especially at that time. So I was like a cigarette company's call. This is really fucking weird. And so I like, I flew to New York and I. To meet with Philip Morris. To meet with Philip Morris himself. <laughs> I got like a couple of packs of smokes. It was great. But I met with all these people and, um, you know, the, the, I think it was the guy at WME was like, listen, we think your book's going to be a big hit. Um, we found a guy who's going to ghostwrite it for you. And, you know, like he's in Nashville. He works for our, like Christian imprint. I'm like, mm. have you read anything? Like I am not religious at all. Like I am the opposite of religious. So I'm like, you're promising me that a guy from your Christian imprint is going to ghostwrite my book and it's going to be out in like two months. And I was like, no, fuck this. So I like, I was done with that guy. Mm. I was meeting with all these different people. And I, I finally sat down with these two women that worked for like some small agency I'd never heard of. They took me out to breakfast. And I had my daughter with me and they were like, 
you know, it was a buffet or something. And they said, Hey, can you, do you want to go get some breakfast? And I was like, yeah, it's, you know, I'm trying to hold. And they're like, let me hold Maddie. And I was like, right then and there, I was just done. I was like, <laughs> I'm signing with them. I don't, I don't need to hear their pitch. I don't need to know anything yeah. about their agency or whatever. And so I signed with them like right on the spot. And, uh, and it was probably the best like experience of my life because here were two people that really cared about me and they cared about Maddie as a person. And like I said, when the sharks are circling, you want like ones that are going to like just be nice to you mm. and not bite you. And right. uh, too many were trying to eat me, you know? So wait, I think the last, last we heard about the book though, you were like, no, I'm not a writer. So at what point did you then decide, yes, I am going to write a book? When all these people said they could make money on me. Oh, okay. So when, yeah. when the circling happened, then you're like, maybe I will do it. Yeah. I thought, you know, the idea is that like, if all these people think they can make money on me, why should Oh, I see. So all these people were circling, wanting to represent you for the book. Yes. For the it was book. for the book. I thought maybe yeah. they were like, and for personal appearances or something like that. So this was a, so the two women for, were from a small book agency. Yeah. Sorry. Got for it. A bo- small book agency. Yes. Cause the, the whole thing was that like, I think in 2008, like every blogger on earth was trying to get a book deal and every agent in New York was trying to get a blogger to write a book. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was just crazy at that time. I mean, there were a million different people out there, mostly like mommy bloggers. I think that were getting just insane advances on mm-hmm. books. And Deuce. Yeah, right. Deuce. Yeah, she, I mean, yeah, she was, she was like everyone's goal. And it was like right. her books were so successful and her, she was so successful in what she was doing that the agents were like, where can we find the next Deuce? Mm. And they were like, I guess they thought maybe I was that. And so, yeah, so they, they just started like all these agents were calling. And when I, when I did finally sign this contract, my agents were like, okay, we're going to, here's an example of what a, a book like proposal looks like. Cause I had no idea how to write one. They're like, just kind of copy this format. We need like a chapter from you. We need kind of an intro and a, and a conclusion or whatever. And we'll send this out to publishers. And they said, if you're lucky, you know, maybe we'll get one or two that are interested and you know, we'll see how it goes from there. And so they sent out my, my uh, proposal on a Friday and on, and this is, I have to like say this, I'm not trying to brag about any of this. This is like such a weird thing for me to talk about, but it, it helps kind of point, uh, paint the picture of like how weird this experience mm-hmm. was for me. So they sent it out on a Friday and they said, you know, hopefully we'll hear something in a couple of months. And on Monday I got a call before I even made it to my office uh, where I worked at Yahoo. And they were like, we need you here on Wednesday. We have uh, 13 publishers. I want to meet with you. Wow. And it had gone out to 18. So I guess five of them were like, fuck this. But the other 13 <laughs> were like, we want to meet you. Uh, and so I had to like go into my boss at Yahoo and be like, I, I need like the next week off. Yeah. And he's like, why? And so I told him and it was just like this weird conversation. And I had to call up my in-laws because they were the only ones in, in my orbit that had the means to just drop everything because they were retired and they had money and they could just fly to New York and help me out. So it's like, I need you in New York on Wednesday to take care of Maddie while I meet with publishers. And they probably thought I was making it up. Like, I, th- I really think they thought I was like out of my mind or that like I had imagined all of this. <laughs> How old was Maddie at this point? She was a year and a half old. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I was still in the midst of all this. Mm. And so they met me in New York and I was like, okay, we're going to go meet with Random House tomorrow. We're going to go meet with Penguin. We're going to go. And I'm, I swear they, they thought I was out of my mind, but they went with me to all these meetings so they could take care of Maddie in, yeah. the, in, the, in the hallway. And, yeah, I mean, it was it was a crazy thing to have that thrust upon you and suddenly have all of these publishers and all of them huge publishers in New York, like just throwing themselves at me. Did it still feel exploitative? Totally. It felt gross as hell. And I, I had to multiple times, I had to like think about in the back of my mind, like, how do I justify this? Because mm-hmm. I understand that exploitation. I understand that I'm now a part of that machine. 
And so I was like, this is, to me, is so disgusting. Because like think, you went to grad school, you're an iconoclast, I'm going to say. Yeah, I think so. I'd like to, I'd like to think of myself <laughs> that way. Maybe. But that, that comes through in the book. Yeah. Um, so I could see a special, look, I'm, I keep pointing it out, but it's, it's become my defining characteristic. I'm Gen X. Yeah. So I get it. Yes, I think you do. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, I just didn't want, and I didn't want people to feel that way. I didn't want Maddie to feel that way mm-hmm. someday. I didn't want her family to think that I was exploiting you the don't situation. Want, you don't want someone to go like, well, there was an upside to the tragedy. Like, yeah. That's the grossest. Yeah, it's, it's gross. And it, it manifests itself much later. Um, <clears throat> When I, you know, when things got better in my life, when mm. somebody wrote me at one point, it was like, I liked you better when you were sad. And it's like, Ick. that's the kind of gross shit you don't want to hear from somebody. But that yeah. happened, you know? And so I kind of felt like, because I, I could hear this in the back of my mind all the time. My wife was a very, very practical person. Mm. Like, you know, she was like, we're going to save money. We're going to buy a house. We're going to do this. When I did impractical stuff, she got pretty upset with me. So I kept hearing her in the back of my mind saying, like, how are you going to provide for this baby? Like, you don't have many talents. Like, you're not, <laughs> you're not especially good at your job. You're not going to suddenly become, like, CEO of Yahoo at some point. Like, you're going to just slowly move your way up the chain, and someday maybe you'll make enough money to, like, move out of our tiny house. So I was trying to think of, like, how could I support this child? Mm-hmm. How am I going to figure out a way to make sure that I can continue to pay our house payment and our kid has food and clothes? And I thought, well, if all these assholes think they can make money on me, why shouldn't I make enough to like take care of my kid? Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to make like fuck you money and like buy an airplane. Right. I just wanted to, like, <laughs> I just wanted to have like clothes for my kid mm-hmm. and for me. And so that's kind of why I was like, all right, I'm going to try this. And so the first words in the book, as I said, are I'm not a writer. And that's truly how I felt about it. And that was the first word in the proposal. And, um, the, one of the, uh, one of the publishers I met with was, um, uh, I mean, like an iconic publisher. It's like one of my favorite, like they put out all these books that I love. This poet, John Berryman is one of my favorite writers. They published all of his stuff after he died. And, um, and I went and it was like this really classic sort of movie moment where I walked in by myself. I think my agents were outside and this dude was facing the other way in a spinny chair and he turned around <laughs> and he's holding my proposal in his hand. He says, he's like, you're not a writer, huh? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. And he's like, that's a hell of a way to start a book proposal. <laughs> He's like, why should I care about this? And we had a great conversation. And uh, I think they ultimately didn't offer me mm. a contract. But it was like one of those things where, you know, I, I was trying to put it on the table because I felt like there was a really good chance I was never going to get this done. I was going to mm. fail at this at the highest level uh, because all these people thought I could do it. And I didn't believe I could. And it, the way I kind of look at it is, is like, let's say you're, you've got like plumbing that's leaking and you're really desperate for somebody who like needs to fix your plumbing. And you're like, Hey Matt, can you like fix my plumbing? And you're like, well, I've never done it before, but if you pay me enough and you don't hold me, hold me accountable for what damage can happen and you don't care that like, I'm just going to take off with this money. Like, sure. I'll do it. I'll give it a shot. Like I would never have you be my plumber. Please don't. I'm like the worst. I have a neighbor who calls me about plumbing shit all the time. I think she thinks I'm somebody different. I have no idea what she's talking about. But, but really that's kind of the way I felt about it. It was like, okay, this is all on them. This is their issue. Like they, they have to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, then I guess I'll take the third of my advance that they prepaid me and I'll go live in Mexico for a couple of years or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how it went. And so eventually we ended up with this publisher and they turned out to be great. I got a, I had an amazing editor who walked me through this process because I, again, I have no idea what I'm doing. I think of books as being sort of, especially a memoir like this. It's like a very linear process. Mm -hmm. We were writing about the first year of my wife's 
you know, my, of my life after my wife died first year, of my daughter's, uh, life together with me. And, um, and as I was writing it, my editor would be like, okay, we're going to take one chapter. We're going to move it to the front. And mm. we're going to, you know, so everything got moved around and I was like, well, this is not how it happened. And she's like, it doesn't matter. Most people who are going to read this aren't thinking about this on a timeline and they don't give a shit when it happened. Let's just make sure this works great. Like write a transition between these two chapters and we'll be fine. Mm -hmm. So we did that. And, um, and then the book came out. I, I, I think I had told everybody that I met with, I was like, it's going to take me, well, the first people I met with, I said, it's going to take me two years to write this. And then they were like, not happy about that. And when I got out, my agents were like, never say that again, tell them six months and we'll figure it out. So I started saying a they year. They told you that ahead of time. I wish I would have known. <laughs> I was trying to be honest and give set expectations, yeah. which is something I do well in my life. <laughs> but that didn't work. And so I had to start lying and telling everybody I could get it done in a year or six months. And when I finally signed the contract, I left my job. I quit my job at Yahoo, uh, which I was doing pretty well in, actually, after all this. And um, and uh, walked away from a lot of money and moved to India for a couple of months. I brought a nanny along, somebody I met like at a concert. She went, she wouldn't work for free for me. <laughs> like just, wow. I was like, I'll cover all your expenses, but I can't afford to pay you. Cause like mm. I, my advance wasn't that big. Um, and so like we hung out in, in India for a couple of months. And the idea behind that was to get as far away from everybody I knew as possible. If I could get halfway around the world, I couldn't have anybody just show up at my house. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have anybody calling me because we were literally 12 hours apart. And I knew a few people there that if I needed some help or if I needed anything, um, you know, they would be there to help me out. And so, yeah, so I just wrote every single day. I would go did to the breakfast. nanny like you, like you. No, she did not. Okay. Thankfully, I think she kind of liked ladies for a while. I'm mm. not sure where she sits now, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. Thankfully, um, there were a few ladies who did like me who were lobbying to go on that trip. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm glad I didn't say yes to that. Cause that could have been a real problem for me. Mm -hmm. And it would have, I would not have finished what I needed to finish. And so, uh, it was hard enough as it was, I was missing every single deadline. Um, basically it was in, as we negotiated our contract, for the book before I left to actually write it, I was already like several months behind because we got a lawyer involved and all this stuff was happening and I was missing out on all this time to write. And I was told not to write until my, until I signed the contract and the publisher was thinking like, Oh, he must be writing this whole time. So oh. about five to six months passed before I actually put, you know, my fingers to the keyboard right? and it was bad news. Uh, so from there I missed every single deadline. I got threatened multiple times that they were going to drop my book. Mm. Uh, I, looked at every legal option to make sure I wasn't going to get sued for the one third of the advance they'd already paid me. Um, and just tried to figure out how I was going to survive now on one third of my advance instead of all three thirds of it. Um, but eventually I got it done and the book came out in 2011 and surprisingly it did really well. It spent like a couple of weeks, six weeks or something on the New York times bestseller list. Um, it got named like Goodreads at the time was nothing. Nobody mm -hmm. cared about it, but it like beat Tina Fey's like bossy pants book as like best memoir, wow. which is like so embarrassing to me because like, <laughs> clearly like I had a nice online presence of idiots who were like out there voting for it. Um, and I would never win another contest like that in my life, but it got a lot of attention. And even before the book was out, we were getting like requests to make a movie and things like that. So Hallmark came to me before the book was written and they were like, we want your life rights. We want to make a movie based on your life. 
And I called some people and I was like, you know, at, at this time I didn't have a movie agent. I just had a TV person or a, a book person. So I called them up and I was like, listen, I need some help. And this was somebody at CAA. I got, I got given their, their name and their information. And, um, I didn't think CAA would actually give a shit about somebody like me, but they were like, let's get you in a meeting. So they had me meeting with TV and movie mm-hmm. and speaking engagements and all this crazy stuff. And so they were like, you're not making a Hallmark movie. This is not happening. So, we told them no way. And they were like, Oh, that's fine. We read about another guy in people magazine whose wife died. And now all these women are donating like their breast milk. Uh, so we're going to make a movie about him. <laughs> and I was like, that was like one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is a vicious yeah. world to be in. And I always heard that Hollywood was shitty like that, but I was like, wow, that is like next level bullshit. Right. And then um, my agent had been like pitching my book around town and nobody wanted it. Like, n- I mean, not one studio cared about it. There was one producer whose name I was hearing early on and he seemed interested, but like, I didn't, it didn't sound like he could get it done. Um, so we kind of gave up on it. And then Lifetime came along and nothing is more terrifying than somebody coming to you and saying like, Hey, Lifetime wants to make your life into a movie. And it's like, Oh shit. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't have to be Lifetime. And so I talked to my agent about it and she's like, listen, the way these Why? things work all the time, because like the way you talked about the movie at the beginning, right now, the one that you've seen that's out at, you know, made by a major studio and all that, like they, they do things differently and they do things better. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with lifetime movies, they all, I mean, they're a cliche for a reason, right? They're just kind of shitty and they're morose mm-hmm. and they're going to lean into the sadness more than any of the sort of like uplifting things that right. come. And so it was a scary thing, but at the same time, you know, I'd quit my job. I burned through my advance pretty quickly. So um, I was trying to figure out more ways to make money. And uh, and one of those ways was like, okay, let's sign this contract yeah. with Lifetime. Also, if anyone from Lifetime is listening, sitting next to the, the NICU nurses, um, no offense. But I feel like a Lifetime movie has a – there's like a feeling that it could be disposable. Absolutely. And it felt like it's been done before yeah. a bunch of times. But what what really kind of turned things a little bit for me was at the time – um, Marta Kaufman had signed on with Netflix, or not, not like, sorry, with Lifetime to start producing some movies. And so this was at the time, you know, she had like Jennifer Aniston and everybody right. was writing Lifetime movies or producing them or directing them or whatever was going on. But she'd gotten all of these people who are kind of unimpeachable in Hollywood, right? And they said, we're going to try to change the face of Lifetime. Mm. We're going to try to make movies differently. And so my movie was going to be one of those movies. Right. And so I met with Marta. Uh, I went, I had this great, great moment with Marta where I went to her little studio in uh, her office in Hollywood. And um, I walked in and her Emmys are all over the place and she's got this giant TV and everything. And she's like, I I, I don't want her to be offended by this if she ever listens to this, but she was like, so what's your favorite episode of friends? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I've never watched friends and I never, I had never seen an episode of friends. I literally didn't. It was on when I was in college and I was doing other things and I just wasn't watching TV at the time. And so I was just like, so embarrassed and she, she played it off and she was totally fine with it. But I was just like, Holy shit. Like I wish I had a better answer. Mm -hmm. I wish I could have made something up, but I was just like, I've never seen it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so like we had this whole experience where I actually sat with her and a couple of writers that had worked on some stuff with her and kind of thought this might actually go. And I was dreading it the whole time. And we'd had to sign all these contracts about, um, 
there was a part in the contract that said like, well, we may turn this into a TV show afterwards. We might adapt this into like a series, mm. uh, which they'd done with some Jennifer Love Hewitt movie about her being a prostitute or something. Or, uh, oh or yeah. Like, uh, she was, what did Joel McHale call it on the soup? He was like, it was like the Jennifer Love Hewitt jerk off hours. It, <laughs> it was like her as a massage therapist or something and whatever. Right. So they were like, we're going to do this to you. And so I had to sign these contracts that were like, is it okay? Or like you're signing away your right. Uh, that if we depict Maddie as having committed a felony in her teen years, that you can't sue us. Jeez. So I was like, holy shit. You know, I'm like talking to lawyers. I'm like, is this cool? And they're like, if you want the money, you got to do it. Mm. Uh, and in the back of my head, it was just my agent over and over again saying, they're never going to make this show. They're never going to make this movie. Take the money and run. Right. So I trusted her and I was like, okay, let's just see what happens. And sure enough, they optioned it for two option cycles, I think. And then they just killed it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, thankfully, <laughs> like, you know, again, a lot of great people involved. They paid me nicely and it was fine, but it just wasn't where I wanted to be. And again, I never had a dream of making a movie. I mm-hmm. didn't want this. I was just trying to find, you know, instead of selling diet pills or whatever, this was like my way of making enough money to like survive. Um, I like that the alternative career path would be selling diet pills. Oh my God. You should see all the bloggers out there that did that. There are all these like crazy bloggers that went from making money on their blogs. And then when the advertising revenue dried up, they started selling shilling diet pills and all sorts of weird shit. So, um, yeah, that was an alternative lifestyle I could have lived. I'm glad I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, hang on one second. I don't know about you guys, but all of this is bringing up a lot of emotion in me. Uh, I'm the queen of segues. I don't know if you know that about I, me. I, I'm loving this. So good, right? <laughs> it's uh, how do I do it week in, week out? And yet I always am able to do it except for the few times that I haven't been able to. But listen, Allison Rose is your Allison Rose is serious. Allison Rose is your new best friend is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. As we begin to see the light at the end of the COVID tunnel, a lot of people are still feeling down and emotionally out of sorts. You may not feel depressed or at a total loss, but if you're feeling a little bit off or your relationship are suffering, that could be a sign you should talk to somebody. Uh, an informal poll of everyone that I've spoken with says that everyone is feeling off right now. It is a weird time. Mm-hmm. Online therapy can help. Um, I have a couple friends who are doing therapy through BetterHelp right now, and they are, they really like their therapist. One of them didn't feel, the first one wasn't a great match, but then, uh, she's now with a different person through BetterHelp and feels like that person is really, uh, really helping her. And that's one of the things I like a lot about BetterHelp is that if you feel like the, the first therapist you're matched with, if you don't feel like you're vibing with them, is that a therapist term? I don't think so. Um, you can change as many times as you want. There's no extra charge. So you don't have to feel like, oh, God, so starting therapy with someone new, especially in a virtual setting that feels like a commitment. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. These are all be- the I remember the first time I'm a big fan of therapy. And uh, I remember before going to therapy the very first time thinking, but I'm going to be stuck with this person. And what if I don't like them? And da, da, da. So I think those are all very normal thoughts. Um, and you are not stuck with them. They will get you to the right person. Uh, and a lot of traditional therapists right now have insane wait lists for all the reasons that we talked about at the beginning. So with BetterHelp, you can definitely get to someone faster. Uh, it's more convenient and more affordable than in-person therapy and financial aid is available. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash best friend. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash best friend, betterhelp.com slash best friend. Okay, so shilling diet pills, you were saying? Yeah, I could have done that and I could have made lots of money, I'm sure. 
Uh, but it seemed really, that seemed like on another, another level of like gross. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like yeah. trying to like talk people into losing weight is like so gross and fucked up. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm glad that that wasn't an option for me. And I, I mean, it was, but I decided not to take it. And so, you know, when I, when, when, when Lifetime walked away and they said, we're not making this movie, I was kind of relieved. It was like, all right, cool. Mm-hmm. I can move forward with my life in a different way. I don't have to think about this stuff anymore. I don't have to consider what's going to be happening. I don't have to think about who's going to watch this movie someday and, you know, be mad at me or whatever it might be. And uh, a couple of months after that, my agent came to me and was like, she's like, we have another offer and somebody wants to make your movie. And I was like, who now? It's like, I mean, I guess it kind of was like on this nice continuum where it went from like Hallmark to Lifetime and you would think it would go up, but I thought it was going to go down like some like dude wants to make it out of his basement or something. (laughs) And they were like, well, no, it's like TriStar Productions and it's, you know, it's Sony wants to be involved and they want to make this movie and like Channing Tatum's production company is involved. And it's like all this shit. With, I was like, wait, what? Like very legit. <laughs> yeah. It was like, it was real people. Um, and so I thought, well, this is crazy. Like this is, this might actually happen. And so at the same time, I was also like, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like they'll just when was this? this. Oh my God. This must've been about 2013, mm-hmm. 2014, somewhere in there. So I, I just assumed again, like, okay, we'll sign another contract. They'll have the option for, I think it was like, you know, 18 months or something, and then it'll just die. So 18 months came and it, it, they re-optioned it. And they're like, we want to keep working on this. And then another 18 months came up and they're like, we want to option this again. And then that kind of just kept happening. They'd extend it for a couple mm-hmm. of months here and there. And, and they really, it felt different this time. It felt like they were really trying to make it happen. But a movie like this is really hard to make, right? Like Hollywood doesn't make a lot of, these kinds of movies anymore. I mean, it's, it's a Marvel world and mm. you know, mm. those are the things that make money. Those are the ones that do well because a lot of times they're making movies for like the Chinese market, right? It's right. a huge market in China. So what's going to get people into the, into the theaters. It's like explosions and cool stuff like that. Like sad dudes doesn't get people. Into theaters, <laughs> you know? So, so it was a really hard road to get this made. And, um, and in the midst of all of it, there were a lot of different people who had signed on and, you know, signed off and all that stuff. So it went from Channing Tatum to, I mean, every one of the Chris's in Hollywood uh, <laughs> at some point was attached to this. Uh, Justin Timberlake at one point, I think was, his name was thrown in there. Um, and so it was just kind of this weird experience. And then suddenly my agent called one day again and it was like, I hadn't heard from her in like a year. Is this your book agent or your CAA agent? It's my CAA agent who then left CAA okay. and kind of bounced around a little bit. And also my book agent because mm-hmm. I'm very much of the mind that like, I kind of wanted everybody to come along with me, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I told my book agent at the time who, who, when she, she was at one agency and ended up leaving. And at the time her, her first agency didn't do a lot of TV and movie stuff. And then when she created her own, they started doing it. I was like, well, I already have this other person, but I'll just pay you too. (laughs) So so I'm like just paying everybody double, which is fine. I, again, I, I just felt like, if you have people that you trust and you mm-hmm. care about, like just pay them out and like the money, will, you'll figure it out someday. Like it'll come to you. Um, it felt like karma or something, I guess. So anyway, so I was both of them most of the time, but the, the movie agent, um, her name is Sherry and she was like working really hard to make all this happen behind the scenes. And she'd been working with this guy named David and his name kept popping up and I'd been hearing his name for years, David Bobert. And he had been moving kind of different places in Hollywood. And I still, cause like, again, I'm way outside of the world of Hollywood. I don't understand how this all works. He was working at a production company or he was working at Sony, but at some point they finally got everything in order and everything got lined up and they said, okay, we also have a star for this, this movie now. And it's going to be Kevin Hart. 
and as we talked about earlier, like we look somewhat similar, but there's a few differences. And so yeah, mostly just the height thing, just the height thing and the abs, right? That's, height, that's height and abs. But other than that, <clears throat> if you squint, same yeah, guy, same guy. And so one of the things that I thought was really cool about it was that like, because if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm like the whitest of white guys in the world. And you're Minnesota not, white, I'm Minnesota white. Like I burn <laughs> in three seconds. outside. <laughs> And what I loved about this casting decision was that it's not something you see typically in mm-hmm. Hollywood, right? Like for basically its entire history, Hollywood's gone the other way, right? Like they've done a, a, a just an awful job of whitewashing stories of, you know, people of color mm-hmm. in, in every community. And so it's really shitty when that happens. In this case, it was awesome, right? Because what they were what they were doing, and what I loved about it was that they were taking a story that I have always talked about as being universal, right? That's when I when I sold my books to the publishers, when I went in and go meet with different agents and everybody else. Why do you, you know, they would always say like, "Why do we want to put out your book? Why do we want to put out this this movie? Why do we want to represent you?" Because it's a story that everybody can relate to. Maybe it's not your wife dying, or your husband dying, or your partner dying, whatever it is. Like we all have these moments in our lives where we have just incredible joy. And we can relate to that. And we can also relate to just the most devastating, joyless moments that we all encounter, right? We're, we're going to experience life. We're going to experience death. Those are our two guarantees. And all the stuff that happens in between is like what makes us individuals. But those two moments, which I got to experience in a 27-hour yeah. period, just it, it, like we can all get there. And I thought if we can turn this around and we can make this a movie that um, relates to everybody and it doesn't have to be told from a white lens and it shouldn't be, I think, in a lot of ways – um, I thought that was brilliant. And I thought, Jesus, man, like Hollywood finally got this right. And I was really proud to sign on to something like that and to be a part of it. And I know there's like a lot of issues with Kevin as a person, right? Like he said some stuff over the years that has, um, has obviously been just like deplorable. I, I don't stand mm. behind some of the things that he said. I think he's atoned for it in a lot of ways, maybe not in a way that like Twitter wants him to atone for it sometimes, but I think he's done a pretty good job of, of talking about it. He's done some interviews during the, the cycle of this movie and go ahead, accuse him of, of, you know, trying to do an image rehab with this movie. Maybe he did. Oh, that hadn't even occurred to me. I've read it a few places. Yeah. Um, I didn't think about it till I read it, but mm-hmm. who cares if, right. if he's trying to rehab his image with something like this and he's actually going about and making changes in the way that he talks about, um, you know, what would happen if his son were gay or whatever, like, good like then then he's had to think about this he's mm-hmm. had to make different decisions and say different things and i think that's really important so i'm i was worried that people would dismiss this out of hand and say like well fuck kevin hart because he's done right. all these terrible things but the fact that it's done as well as it has and i've i've read a couple of things from people who really do take uh they don't really like what he said it was really awful but they were able to look past it and say like okay this movie's done a, a really important thing where it's it's turned this cast and it's, it's a black cast. And I I read a writer in in England talking about this and she was saying like, these are dark skinned actors telling a story. That's not a black movie. You know what I mean? And and it's really hard. I don't want to talk about race because this is not my world to be speaking. And I shouldn't be talking about this too much, but Mm -hmm. in talking to Kevin and talking to the people involved with this movie without fail, every one of them said is like, we want, we want a, a a really positive depiction of strong black fatherhood, Mm -hmm. And we want a strong black family. We want to see, um, you know, somebody relying on their friends and family in a way that you don't see in movies like this, right? Like Kevin will talk about this all the time in interviews. He'll say, you know, it's like he wasn't a criminal. He wasn't doing anything wrong. Something bad happened and he relied on his community to get him through it. And that's, there's no backstory. Mm -hmm. He's an executive in an internet company. He's doing these great things. There's nothing there that like anybody's going to peg as 
stereotypical in any way. Right. Which I really like about that movie. It, it could have been rewritten in lots of different ways because it, the screenplay was written by somebody, uh, Dana Stevens, who's amazing and who we'll talk about as you were asking the question about how involved I was as mm-hmm. this happened. But Dana was was amazing. But then when a director comes on, it often happens where the director ends up, you know, they do rewrites. It's mm-hmm. just part of the process. And they do rewrites oftentimes uh, to kind of accommodate the actors that are involved. And Kevin's story, he has a very unique story about his life with his dad. And they changed up a lot of that. So the, the fact that my dad is a philanderer and mm-hmm. a drunk in the movie is to be a little closer to Kevin's real life experience so that he could draw on that for, you know, his acting. And I think it actually worked pretty well for him. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So then like certain things like um, Maddie in the movie wanting to wear pants, you mentioned your daughter being a tomboy um, and meeting Lizzie, which are not in the book. Yeah. Um, so how did, how did you work with them to bring the like updated parts of your life to, to the movie? The good news is that because of the promise they made to me from the beginning, which was, we want to honor your family. We want to do this right. They talked to me a lot. The the screenwriter, Dana, would would call me up just random times and be like, what kind of car did you drive? Which seems like a dumb thing. But mm-hmm. she was like, are you like, are you driving like a Lamborghini around town? Or are you like a regular <laughs> guy that has like a Honda? And I was like, you know, and, and because she didn't know, I mean, she read the source material. She right. read the blog. She read the book. But. I'm not talking about what kind of car I drive. Yeah. I was driving a Honda and I traded in for a Nissan and I was trying to get the cheapest one available because I don't give a shit about cars. You know, and so that that gives you an idea of who the person is. And so mm-hmm. she was asking questions like that. I was like, whoa, you know, tell me about some of your friends that and she's like, I'm I'm thinking of like a friend who's like single and somebody you maybe wouldn't leave your kid with if you had to go out for a night mm-hmm. or something. And I was like, oh, I have a lot of those. I live, in, <laughs> I live in LA. You live in LA. You know like what men under 40 in LA are typically like, right? right? So I was like, yeah, that's all of my friends. So they took elements of those friends to create the characters. Mm-hmm. And and they took elements of my life to to make the movie better and to enhance it. Because again, if you're making a movie based on my book, my book covers the first year of, of Maddie's life. It's boring as shit. Like – what do babies do in the first year? Like they roll over Mm -hmm. and that's like their biggest milestone. They're not talking yet. They're not (laughs) doing anything cool. Maybe they'll walk if you're really lucky. She didn't walk till she was like 16 months old. So, you know, even in writing the book, my editor was like, I need more of Maddie's personality in here. And I'm like, she doesn't have, she's one. She doesn't (laughs) have have them. Yeah. (laughs) Like if you've been around, she was 23. I was like, have you ever been around a fucking kid? Like they don't do anything at this age. Yeah. So, so all of that stuff, like when you, you, the the first third of the movie or so is kind of that first year of Mm -hmm. our life together. And then the other two thirds are like fast forwarded into Maddie being about eight or nine years old, me meeting Lizzie and, and that's where I think kind of the richness of the movie comes mm-hmm. in. That's like the uplifting parts of it, the the happier parts. And I think the better part of the movie is when you get past that kind of mm-hmm. sadness and you fast forward into um, the fictionalized version of our life, but kind of based on our reality. Right, so. right. You have on two wedding rings. I do. Yeah, you noticed that. Um, I did. So I, I have on my left fingers my, my wedding ring to Lizzie, mm-hmm. so my current wife. And I moved my other wedding ring to my right finger, and I can never get it off now because I got fat. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I always I, – I kept those things on. Um, for the first year or so after Liz died, I had her like engagement ring and her, and her wedding band on my pinky, mm-hmm. and I knocked out one of the diamonds on her um, – oh. 
oh, no. on her on her wedding band, and I was like, shit, I probably shouldn't wear this around anymore. And it was getting weird. Like I was walking around with a pinky ring, and uh, people were always asking me questions. So I was like, I got to get rid of this. But um, yeah, I, I, to me, it's like one of those things. And I talked to Lizzie about it before we got married. I was like, I just. I don't want to take this off, but mm-hmm. I don't want you to think that like I love her more than you. And I, it's a, it's a hard thing to balance, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. you don't want to be one of those people that only talks about your late partner and then your other partner sitting in the corner being like, well, what about me? You know, right. like it can't be like that. And I think that's another nice thing about the movie is that, you know, actually Liz, my, my late wife is only a small part of this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. her, I guess you want to talk about it in a weird spiritual way. Like her spirit is throughout, but most of the movie focuses on my life trying to like move through mm. my, all my sadness and stuff with a new person. Um, and that depiction of our relationship is completely inaccurate in terms of how we met. We didn't right. meet as a setup. I met her on an airplane, but they couldn't put that in because that's who would believe that, right? Like right. who meets so somebody random. on an airplane? It was on a Southwest plane. Super weird. Um, but that really happened. And then, you know, we, I didn't have any problems. Like when I met her, I was like, Oh, this is great. Like she, integrated well into our, our little mm-hmm. family and Maddie loved her from the beginning. And, you know, it was just kind of an easy situation. I dated other people before that and mm-hmm. it was awful in a lot of ways. And so this was like such a nice and natural mm-hmm. experience. And I was like, well, this is, this is where I want to be. You know, I wondered, cause in the movie he is a little bit has a, like there's, I don't want to give it away, but something happens. And then he's like, I'm not ready for, well, Maddie's not ready for this. So that didn't really happen. None of that really happened. Not with her. I think maybe early on, I kind of Mm -hmm. felt that way or like maybe it helped me or it kept me from getting deeper involved with other people Mm -hmm. that I'd met along the way. Uh, I don't like to talk about any of that, but it's, uh, it's one of those things where like, yeah, I think maybe I was really hyper-focused on her, but by Mm -hmm. the time Lizzie came around and this was in, I, I met her, I think in like the end of 2012 and we didn't start dating until, you know, middle of 2013. It was, it was like one of those things where like I was past all that. I was mm-hmm. ready for us to have like another person in our life and to be somebody that we could kind of move forward with and like have a real life. I mean, uh-huh. Maddie had been begging for a sibling. She wanted a brother for so long. Um, and obviously that wasn't going to happen right away, but, but we waited for a bit and now Maddie does have a sibling and she's got another one coming in October. So it's like, we've got now kids that'll be 11 years apart and now 13 years apart. And, um, and that's something that I, I saw in Lizzie and I saw somebody that I could spend the rest of my life with who also got where I was coming from, mm-hmm. you know, just like anybody else in the world, she's experienced some, some loss, mm-hmm. uh, in different ways. She had a nephew that she was incredibly close to who died. Um, Oliver. Yeah. Oliver died. And that was, you know, I had met people along the way who hadn't really experienced that kind of stuff, but there's a bond that comes along with that, that grief and, um, and you find ways to kind of like support one another. And so she's always been really understanding of like, and I'm not always great at communicating how I feel about, you know, what's going on on, on March 25th, which is the day that my wife died. And so she's always like, I'm here, whatever you need me to do. If you want me to leave or you want me to like go with you somewhere, like, and she's just there. Mm. And, um, and I love that. She's just always there to, to, to try to help however I can or however she can, but I don't know how to tell her how to help me. So mm-hmm. she just does whatever. And it's, um, it's really great. Do you dream about, uh, the first Liz? I used to, I don't so much anymore. And it was always the same dream. It was, um, we'd be somewhere else, usually on the East coast somewhere. And I would see her with another family mm. and, uh, and she'd be with like another dude and like a bunch of kids and I'd be like, Hey, what's going on? Like, where have you been? You know, like where, where did you go? And she's like, well, 
I got this other family here. And I'm like, but Maddie's really cool. Like, I want you to, to see who she is as a person. I want you to see her growing up. And she's like, great, but I got this other family now. And, uh, and that uh, was that when you already had another family? Uh, no, okay. it was before that. It was just like a weird thing where, you know, cause I, I don't think the brain does a good job of processing right. death. Right. It's one thing if there's, and, and this is not to diminish a long-term illness, but when somebody's perfectly healthy sitting in front of you at one moment and then the next moment they're gone, like how, how does your brain process? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you figure out how to deal with that? Because I still don't, I still don't get it. Like mm-hmm. I, like and for a year afterwards, I was, I would think about like calling her and I knew she was gone. I'm very rational when it comes to this mm. stuff, but it's still like your brain can't, as much as you try to talk it into it, you can't tell yourself like, Oh, this person's never, you're never going to see them again. You're yeah. never going to talk to them again. This is where I wish, I wish I was religious where I, mm-hmm. I could be like, oh, I'm going to see her in heaven or some shit. But because I don't believe in that, like it, it's such a final thing mm-hmm. for me where it's like she died and fuck, I'm never going to see her again. And there's nothing more depressing than that. You know, it's fucking awful to think about that. And, um, and yeah, so those dreams were just horrific. Yeah. I don't dream, or at least I don't remember my dreams. I always had one dream where like I never finished grad school, um, because I failed my stats class, but I actually <laughs> like I graduated. It was one of those things where I didn't walk cause it was like a mid-year graduation, mm-hmm. but my grad school gave me an alumni award a couple of years ago. And as soon as I got that award, I was like, that that was gone. I like yeah. I finally like had some like, resolved. Yeah, it was resolved, and it was it was great. Um, and I think maybe now that I'm married and and mm-hmm. you know I have another kid coming and I have another kid, like that seemed to me that that kind of like knocked out that feeling of like oh you left us like you mm-hmm. you disappeared from our lives, which is never a feeling I had. You know, I think it was that same social worker in the hospital who said like told my dad actually. Um, after after a couple of days was like you know matt's going to be angry that and he's going to feel like liz left him and consciously speaking i never felt that way i was never it's not like she just chose to walk off with some other dude Mm -hmm. she died and she had no control over it and i know that she would have done anything in the world to not have died um and so like you know there's all these like therapists out there the people that will kind of tell you about these like stages. stages of grief and stuff mm-hmm. and i for some people that works really great i think therapy is 100 percent important for everybody but sometimes those stages didn't work for me mm-hmm. and, and for somebody to tell me that i was going to feel a particular way because they'd read about it in a book or something it was like well that it didn't it didn't ring true to me and it yeah. didn't actually work and so maybe that was what informed those dreams or something but like i'm just glad to be rid of them mm-hmm. as much as i possibly can be um yeah, I was curious. The reason I, I, well, I was curious about the rings, but I guess I was wondering, and you sort of alluded to this. You might have already answered it, but I was wondering, does Lizzie ever feel like there are three people in this marriage? I don't think she does. Uh, that would be a good question for her next time you have her here. I don't think she does. I, I try to do a really good job of not making it feel that way. I don't know if I'm successful, but, mm-hmm. you know, 13 years have passed. Yeah. And, you know, the grief that I feel, which is still present, as I said earlier, is not the same as it was 13 years ago. Um, I don't, I don't have a blog anymore. I'm not, I'm not trying to engage people or make people remember that like, Hey, you know me because I'm a sad dude. (laughs) What I want people to see in my, my basic means of communication these days is Instagram. Like I just love sharing photos. It's just something I do. I don't care it's nice that people care, but I don't, I'm not doing it for them. I'm not doing it for uh, an audience. I'm not, I don't have any sponsors. I don't get sponsored posts. I truly, and I, this is going to sound terrible. I don't care if people buy my book. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, 
I don't care if people watch the movie. It's great that they do. But none of this was my end goal. I had, the book is for Maddie. The book is it's dedicated to her. I want her to read it someday. I want her to have a document of what my life was like with her for that first year. That's all that matters to me. I know my publisher wants people to read it. I know my publisher wants people to buy it. And I know Netflix and Sony and everybody wants people to watch the movie. Mm-hmm. But that's not my end goal. So if that's not my end goal and it's not – my goal is really just to keep Liz's memory alive for Maddie and for me, then it takes away all that public shit. Yeah. Which can make Lizzie feel bad because it's easy to, to reassure her and say, no, I love you. Like there's no competition here. There's, we're not, I'm not comparing you to her. There's no, I'm not pitting you against one another. Mm-hmm. And this happens a lot in, I, I, I know a lot of widowed people who have gotten remarried and they're still out there trying to have an outward show of their grief, right? Mm-hmm. Because it becomes their brand. Mm-hmm. It becomes something that they have to live with to continue to get sponsors for their, their website or whatever it might be for their podcast for just in real life. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I have people who are writing books about this, who are still trying to talk about that grief in the same way that they did when their, when their partner died. Is it, but is it like a, is it a a financial thing? Like you're saying, is there, let me rephrase. Is there also an element of it though? That's like, I feel guilty moving past this. I think it's all of the above. I mean, there's there's probably a financial aspect to it. I would think maybe that's not the case. Some people, I think, genuinely need to continue to talk about it mm. a decade later, twenty years later, um, and other people just like, <laughs> like I said, somebody told me one time, I liked you better when you were sad. Yeah. Was and this like a person on the internet? Th- yeah, this was like a you know a blog comment yeah. or something, or somebody wrote me a letter about my book. I don't remember what it was, but it was something really awful like that. Yeah. And to me, like. I honestly don't give a shit. Like I truly don't care. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 to a fault, I don't care about these things. And so I think that there's, there's this level of like, you want to feel accepted and you want people to like you. And it's really hard for people to criticize you when you're talking about a dead partner. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got criticized a lot and I'm sure people out there who, who do this get criticized, but you get criticized a lot less mm-hmm. when you're talking about your sad moments than you do. If you're talking about your successes and all the things that are happening as a result of this sad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really like, sometimes it's like a diversion, right? Like, Hey, I've got all these great things happening. I've got this book. I've got this movie coming. Mm-hmm. And oh, don't by forget- the way, don't forget my wife died and it was really yeah. fucking awful. Like that's a given. Like mm-hmm. it's awful. It's still awful. I don't need to tell you all the time that it's awful. I don't need to put up a photograph every couple of days and remind you like, Hey, by the way, the reason you're here is because my wife died. Mm. Like everybody knows. And if they're following me in the interim and they haven't figured this out, well, I guess it's going to be pretty shocking when they find out that I'm talking about two different ladies named Liz and I'm mm-hmm. married to both. And one of them's dead. You know, it's like, I, I, it just feels dirty to me. Like, mm-hmm. cause and also it's like, I, I feel dirty about a lot of it just on my own. Like, Having a blog at one point like feels – I mean it's, like I said, a relic of those that, that yeah. time period. But it also just feels really gross now. Part of the reason I took it offline is because I was like, uh, I don't want this like as public record really. I just want it gone. Why? I don't, I'm embarrassed probably. I don't know. It just feels like – to me, it just feels like a relic of that time. And mm-hmm. I just – I said a lot of stuff um, and I opened myself up in a lot of ways that like I think if I hadn't been in the midst of like some pretty horrible grief, I wouldn't have. So like the like the the – vulnerability being just out there feels weird. Yeah, definitely. And I just, and like I said, I, I feel like it was there and people read it and you got what you needed out of it. I got what I needed Mm -hmm. out of it in terms of like getting my feelings out and all of that. But I don't need to remind everybody like, Hey, I was once this Mm -hmm. when I, like I said at the beginning, you know, I like to be introduced as a homemaker. 
I don't like people talking to me about uh, talking about me as an author or as a writer. I wrote this thing 10 years ago mm-hmm. or it's been out for 10 years. I wrote it 12 years ago. I don't consider myself a writer. I wasn't a writer then. I'm not a writer now. I, I'm a stay at home dad. I take care of my, my youngest daughter when my wife works and does amazing things in the world. Uh, and I, you know, run my 13 year old back and forth to school and different <laughs> things. And that's, that's my life. And that's what I prefer to do. And so now that the movie's out, the book is back out being talked about. Everybody's like, so what's next for you? And my answer is always the same. It's like, I want to go back to anonymity. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to like living with my, my family and not thinking about this shit all the time. Like, I don't want to talk about movies. I don't want to talk about my book. I really liked that, that 10 year period where like, okay, the book was out for a little bit. I did like a press cycle and then the paperback came out a year later and I did a much more compressed press cycle. And then for nine years, nobody cared about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was great. And I look forward to that again. But at the same time, I also really like this opportunity to come out and like talk about some of this stuff right. because it helps me work through my feelings too. Like this is great therapy for me right now. Well, you're welcome. Because I don't know how to deal with this <laughs> stuff sometimes. Like I don't know how to feel about other people talking about their stuff and like constantly reminding everybody about their grief. Like I know that they have their reasons, but I have lots of friends in this community. I mean, there's like millions of them now that I've met throughout the world, not, not literally millions, but hundreds for mm-hmm. sure. And it's, it's really hard. I mean, I've witnessed some of them start up, um, you know, different organizations and then find love and then find out like, uh, I, I'm not as devoted to this thing as I once was. Right. Um, a friend of mine who lives in Texas was, was very much a part of that. She was doing great things for, for widowed families of like military, like spouses. And it was great. And then, and she was like, I'll never, I'll never get married. I'll never find love again. And then she did. And then it was like, <laughs> she, she kind of disappeared, which I yeah. kind of respect. Like she was like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. But she was also trying to figure out a way to like, hold on to like that sadness. Yeah. So that everybody knew who she was. And that just because she found happiness again, doesn't mean she doesn't feel that sadness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. I've had, do you know who Mary Catherine Ham is? Yeah. Um, I've had her on my show a number of times, both before her. So you know about her husband was, um, he died in a bike accident yes. suddenly, tragically. I had had her on the show before that, and then I've had her on sort of throughout that. And then now she's remarried and is pregnant with her third child with her new husband. And she's, I mean, she she talks a lot about, the experience of losing her husband and of like working through that grief and a lot of say, I think, you know, similar to you, a lot of uh, new widows, widowers reach out to her and she kind of, you know, and she was saying that like, you know, when you're right away, the idea that you won't always feel this way, that you won't always be sad. Like that doesn't sound good to you because it's, it, it sounds bad actually, Yes, which I think is so interesting. It sounds awful. And it's like, it's such a, it feels like it, you're just like totally getting rid of this person who died. Right. You're just throwing them in the trash. And so that's the, that's the initial, you know, if you want to talk about like stages, it's not grief. It's like stages of like moving forward. Mm-hmm. It's like, I am never going to get over this. I'm never going to date anybody yeah. again. I'm never going to be happy again. And then it's like, okay, well. Right. You know, like I'll live my life as a permanent reminder that it's fucked up. That this person's gone. Yes. I'm going to wear black all the time. And I'm going to, you know, women are going to wear a veil forever. Like, <laughs> right. You know, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm just going to keep my wife's clothes in the house at all times mm-hmm. forever. And we're not keep gonna, her shows on the DVR. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which I did for a little while. And it was like, you know, you're going to keep, you're going to preserve that just as it was like in every movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like some teen dies in a car crash and suddenly like the room stays like that forever. Those are the things that we're kind of like fed. And so 
it's less of like, Hey, it's healthy to say, I'm going to take this stuff out of the house and I'm going to move forward in a way that's meaningful. Like mm. I have to think about it in a practical way too. Sometimes it's like, okay, oh, God, I, like, I don't really want to throw this, this vacuum away. She bought it and like, but it's like the vacuum like is kind of a piece of shit now. Like the <laughs> vacuum technology has moved forward in so many ways. Do you have a Dyson app? I, because no, you, <laughs> but I do have a Dyson. <laughs> okay, perfect. yeah, so do I. And so it's like I think about it sometimes. I'm like, oh, but she would want the new vacuum, right? So like, I'm getting rid of this. It's like she was like a power BlackBerry user, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember when I got my first iPhone, I was like, oh, she would hate this. And I was like, no, she wouldn't. She she would have gotten rid of yeah. this shitty old technology and bought an iPhone, you know. And so it's like those moments where I think like you're trained in your grief to like try to hold on to this mm-hmm. weird stuff and it's okay to let go of it because that person would have let go of it too. It, and, and to the point where like I lived in our house with, you know, Lizzie moved in with us eventually into the house I bought with my late wife and I was there 13 years and it was, it was time to go. Like we were having another baby. We needed more space. And so we were going to sell the house. And I think in my mind, I was like setting myself up for this, like really depressing, like, oh my God, they're going to have to pull me out of my, no, I was mm-hmm. the only one who didn't care. We sold the house and I was like, great. I'm so excited. We're moving to a bigger house. We're going right. to have a b- bigger yard. All we're going to get away from these shitty neighbors that we had, all this stuff. And Lizzie was sad about leaving it. Mm, that's interesting. And I thought like, oh my God, like that's so crazy that she feels that way. She was only in the house two or three years. But she felt that way. Mm-hmm. And Maddie felt that way until she saw her new room at the new house. She was like, oh, this is like <laughs> – my room is now as big as our old living room, so I'm, I'm cool. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, sometimes it's okay to let go of this stuff. And I think we have to be okay with it because a lot of people tell us we can't let go, but we have to be the sad person that mm-hmm. they fell in love with. Otherwise – like where, what's up, what's going to happen to our audience if we're no longer sad, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to send you messages saying, I liked you better. Then. That's, <laughs> That's a scary so thing interesting. for people. Um, and last question, uh, Obama is involved in this movie. Have you talked to him? Um, and how did all that happen? I don't think anybody should let me talk to Obama. Um, <laughs> like if there's one, Barack Obama, in yeah, case they're yeah, like, Barack, who, who do you mean? And Michelle, yeah. um, cause it's their production companies involved. And so, um, the reason they shouldn't let me talk to them is because I would just be Oh, you tied. actually did talk to them? I, no, they didn't. Oh, okay. No, I, I think I told everybody involved. I was like, I would love to meet them. I think they're they're like two of my favorite people in the whole world. Like, I voted for them twice. I would have voted for them 10 times if I could have. Um, just as people, they're unimpeachable. Like, they're just amazing human beings. Everything they touch is, is incredible. And so, uh, you know, we had this whole thing with the movie where – it was supposed to be a theatrical release, right? This was a big Sony movie. We're talking like, you know, movie premieres, red carpets in 200 plus countries. Not that they were going to send us to all mm-hmm. these things, but like this was going to be a gigantic movie for Sony. Um, and then COVID hit. And so they finished filming this in the fall of 2019. And Kevin came home the same week that he had come home. He got into that car accident and broke his oh, back. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. They finished shooting on Tuesday. I think he broke his back on the Friday or Saturday. Mm-hmm. So, and he recovered really quickly. And so they were still on track to like release this thing in early or the early part of 2020. So I saw a cut of it in January and, you know, it was looking really good. I was really excited about it. And then COVID hit and it was like, oh shit, now what are we going to do? So dates were jumping back and forth and all this stuff. And eventually the producers and my agent, everybody came back to me and they said, we have this really cool opportunity. We're going to, we can't do a theatrical release. We don't think it's the time for it. We don't think people are going to come out to a movie like this, right? Like they want to go see fast nine or something. Mm-hmm. Cars are going to be exploding and whatever. Um, but to ask people to come out in the midst of this thing, which is still going on and still running rampant in a lot of parts of the country, it doesn't seem right to ask them to come see a sad movie about people dying, you know? <laughs> so they're like, 
Kevin has this deal with Netflix that he signed and we think Netflix is a really good home for this. And I thought at first I was kind of disappointed because it's like, you know, this is my one opportunity in life to like walk a red carpet and get excited about. And it sounds stupid and superficial, but I was like, this is going to be cool for Maddie. You know, Mm -hmm. I want her to be able to experience this and it was going to be great. And then that all got taken away. And so they're like, we're going to, we're going to do this Netflix thing. And then I got a call from this producer, David Bobert, who I've been talking to forever. And he's like, I just want to give you a little heads up. There's going to be some news dropping in the next like couple of days. I don't know when, but he's like <laughs> through their production company, Barack and Michelle Obama are going to sign on as producing partners for this movie. And I was just like, I mean, I just started crying because it's like, you know, you go through all this shit and like some of it you expect, you know, this movie's happening and you're expecting all this stuff to happen. And it's pretty cool. Like just as a person, it's like, Oh cool. They're making a movie about your life. That's pretty neat actually. And then you find out that Obama knows your name, you know, cause that's all I heard. It was not that he's producing this movie, but he knows my name. Mm-hmm. You know, he's heard my name in this movie because they kept my name in it. And so I thought like, I'm glad that he knows my name that way. And it's not like he had to like commute my sentence or something. You know, like, <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like a death penalty case. And or they're something. looking for another July, you know, January 6th insurrectionist, Matt Logan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And those are the things that like, I think probably most of my family might be known for, uh, not the insurrection, but just dumb shit. Um, and so it was kind of like, it was a nice feeling and it felt like validating in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Right. Because, you know, I wrote this book and I don't consider myself a writer. And you think about all the the places this has gone, which I never expected. Like I wrote it. I thought maybe my mom would read a, a couple of copies. I never expected to end up on the, on the bestseller list. I never expected to sell as many copies as I've sold. I've never expected it to be back in print now with a new title. I don't know if you saw this, but it's got a, a new cover with Kevin. And I did see that. Yeah. Yeah. I should have brought you one. Uh, I'll, I'll make sure you get one, but they changed the cover. They changed. I added some stuff and I added a new chapter, all this different stuff, but I never expected that 10 years after the initial publication that this book could be out. And, um, and now, you know, all these, these crazy experiences, all these crazy, like, you know, surprises. And then to get a call saying that Barack and Michelle Obama (laughs) are signing on to produce this thing. It's like, I mean, it blew my mind. Like, how do you even process that? Mm -hmm. And so when I was talking to the producer, I was like, David, like, he's like, yeah, I'm hoping to get you and Kevin and Barack and, and hopefully Michelle on a zoom at some point. I was like, no, (laughs) because, because I will say something so embarrassing and I'll just ruin, like, he'll just want to sign off as a producing partner. Like, it'll just be over. <laughs> so I was like, maybe I would love to talk to him. Like, there's nobody I would, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I know you're Just saying. above you right. <laughs> is Barack and Michelle. And like, I would love to speak to them. I'd love to be able to talk to them about a lot of different things. And I think, um, you know, I, I hope that someday I get to talk to them because it, I think it's so cool what they've done. And, they took a movie that I think could have gotten a lot of criticism in a lot of different ways um, because of Kevin's involvement, that kind mm. of stuff. And getting them involved just took that off. I mean, just, some people are still going right. to criticize Kevin. Yeah. When, no, it's kind of unimpeachable. Right. When they sign on, it's like they see value in this. Mm-hmm. And if they see value in this, there's value in it. Like it, it, there's not too many people that can put their name on something mm-hmm. and you can immediately say like, yes, mm-hmm. there's value in this because they say it. it there's value. And so it, it made me feel so good and so validated that even if this movie was, and I didn't know if it was going to be a terrible piece of shit, you know, <laughs> like I'm not a good judge of this stuff. It's my own life. I can't tell you like, this is going to be a great movie or it's going to be awful. But if it was going to be awful, at least they were a part of it, you know? And, um, and thankfully it wasn't awful. And thankfully they're a part of it. And even if it only 
was number one on Netflix in the U S for one day, I would have been thrilled. Like it would have been really cool to say like, Hey, this happened. I talked to people at Netflix. They said, this is really difficult in a world where you only have to stream two minutes of something and it's a TV show and Mm -hmm. whatever people can goose those ratings pretty easily. So for it to be number one on Netflix in the U S for six straight days, and it's been in the top 10 since then, it's now going on two weeks since it's been out. And then to be number one in 82 countries around the world was like, mind-blowing yeah and then to have barack put something on twitter about it i like i kind of (laughs) like i didn't even know how to handle that but i was like i know he's not talking about me directly he's talking about kevin he's talking about the movie he's talking about his financial role in this thing Mm -hmm. but But in the back of my mind i'm like he he knows who i am and this is so weird and um and that to me is like the ultimate tribute it's like all of this stuff that happened, like Liz's name is living on, right? Like uh-huh. somebody knows that she's the root of all of this. And, um, and I think that's such a cool thing. Like somebody who is so obsessed with like, you know, us weekly and all those kind of rags, you know, she would be like, she would just be losing her mind <laughs> to know that this was happening because of her right? and her name and, and all of that. And so that's another one of those things that makes me feel better about, being an asshole and taking money for something that seems like exploitation. Mm-hmm. It's like I can in the, in, in my mind, I can also say like, no, no, she would love this. She would love that. This was about her. She would love that. She was at the center of all this you know? <laughs> in a very cool, narcissistic way. She'd just be like, holy shit, this is, this is me. I did this. And I love that. And How, I love that. I lied when I said that the other thing was the last question. How does Maddie feel about all this? Oh, she's, <laughs> she's so funny. Cause she's really shy. And, um, and so she's because of our move and all sorts of stuff, she's kind of bounced around a couple of different schools. She was at one school. We put her in another one because the first school was kind of shitty. Uh, and then when we moved, she got uh, her last year of elementary school in La Cunada, but that got cut short because of COVID. And then her seventh grade year got cut. I mean, she only had like three weeks of school. So she has friends, but she doesn't know them well enough to be like, Hey, this is what's going on in my life and not come off as like somebody who's trying to brag. Mm-hmm. Also, it's really hard to discuss this movie, um, not so much because like her mom died. I think she's she's talked about it a lot and she's done some some press for this, like some local news stuff. Um, but it's really hard to get people to believe that this movie's about her <laughs> when they see a young black girl playing her. Mm-hmm. Like she could say this, and if they don't watch the movie, they're not gonna hear her name, you know? Yeah. Uh the title of the the movie doesn't match what the old book title was. So it's it's this thing where she doesn't want to come off as bragging, you know, um, in the same way that she doesn't want to brag about Lizzie and Wendy, right? Like her her other mom and her aunt are these really amazing TV writers and they're doing great stuff all over Hollywood. But Maddie doesn't walk in and be like, oh, yeah, my, my mom created this TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, she just doesn't do it. She doesn't want to talk about it. Um, so she's just shy about it. She's just like she wants to hold it all in. And it's the same thing where like she's not impacted by all this Mm -hmm. even though i think we're you probably hear this from a lot of people but i feel like we're like the least hollywood of anybody in hollywood like we just don't like we don't care about it it's not like part of our life it's it pays our bills and that's and lizzie loves what she does but i'm i'm i don't want to do this shit anymore like i want to go like i said i want to go back to being a homemaker Mm -hmm. um and maddie just kind of like it's just normal for her it's just like part of her life and so she doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to brag about it. She doesn't want people to think that she's got a big head about it. And I, I love that, you mm-hmm. know, because if I were her <laughs> at that age, I would be like, I'd be in school being like talking to my teachers. Like my dad wrote a book. Uh, can I get an A in English? You know, <laughs> like my mom is a TV writer. Like I, I'm also a great writer, obviously give me an A in English. And so like, 
I would be using this in every possible way <laughs> to like succeed in school and to make friends and all this. And she's just like, forget it. You know, um, she's at camp right now. She's off for a month as she goes every summer. And she told one of her camp friends, she's got like one really close friend that she's known for the last six years. And she told her, and I think that friend told a whole bunch of people. <laughs> Well, good. Yeah. So like she went to camp the two days after the movie dropped. And so she's dealing with that now. And, uh, <laughs> and so I think some people at camp know, but it was cool that like this happened and she also kind of got taken away from all of it. Yeah. She wasn't like, you know, she wasn't having to deal with any of the, you know, the numbers that were coming out about how many people streamed the whole mm-hmm. thing or whatever. She just, she got to see that the movie was out and then she just disappeared for a month. And, and I think that's kind of a nice thing yeah. for somebody like her who just doesn't want to brag. So. Right. Right. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Um, tell everyone. Well, so the book is Two Kisses for Maddie or Fatherhood. Fatherhood. I would say buy Fatherhood if okay. you're going to buy it. Um, there's some updated stuff. I also did an interview with Kevin uh, in the midst of COVID. We did. Yeah, like I wish I, had, I I should have bought that one. Yeah. I was try- I was being uh, loyal to you. That's very nice. <laughs> well, buy the new one um, because there's a, a, a chapter at the end where I talk about Lizzie and and our baby Birdie. And, okay, I got to um, get that one. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure you get one. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's some new content in there, and it's just a little more up to date plus it's nice you get the whole like movie cover thing yeah um it's also cheaper too i think it's on amazon right now for like 3.99 for the the kindle version Mm -hmm. um paperbacks are somewhere around like 13 bucks or something but uh yeah buy it it's called fatherhood it's really um it's sad don't read it on a plane is my advice (laughs) make sure if you are somebody who likes to drink make sure you have a bottle of wine nearby and a box of kleenex um Early on when the book came out, I was sending out like I would give like, I was doing giveaways for the book and I was sending out little boxes of Kleenex and That's stuff. Funny. A couple of bottles of wine went out too. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I would love it if you did. I know my like I said, my publisher would love it if you bought the book. Uh, and there's some funny stuff in there. It's not all sad, but I think I think people have liked it in the past. I hope people will continue to like it. We'll yeah, see I found it very riveting, a uh, heavy, uh, but emotional, uh, but but really. Uh, really well written for someone, who, especially for someone who claims not to be a writer. Well, I appreciate that. It's written in very plain English. Like I'm not, um, I'm not a very smart guy, so it doesn't like. There's not a lot of metaphor in this. It's just like a very. <laughs> you're getting hit over the head with some stuff, whether it's good or bad or funny or happy or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I'm just, I'm just telling you how I feel in the same way that I talk. Yeah. Not very intelligently, but it some level of (laughs) communication happens. And so it's there. (laughs) Um, Listen, if you like what you're hearing, please make sure that you are subscribed uh, and leave us a nice comment. Won't you five stars? It helps people find the show and it helps out the show. And I read those all the time. And sometimes I even read them on the show. So look, don't disappoint me with your um, lack of comments, you guys. Uh, And then also I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Patreon, <laughs> uh, weekly bonus episodes, Zoom parties. There's a level where you can text me and I will text you back. You'll, uh, so much access to me, you'll beg me to leave you alone. But the texting is really fun. I've been having a ton of fun with it. And I, I think all the people who are at that level enjoy it. Um, they seem to. So, oh, and then also, if you sign up for a year, 
you can do an annual subscription on Patreon. Then you get two months free. So it's 12 months for the price of 10. Um, also, I'm an Amazon influencer. You can go to uh, amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. Again, that's amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. And there's all these different lists. So you can like shop my podcasting gear, uh, makeup that I recommend. Beauty stuff is also the same as makeup that I recommend and like home stuff and <laughs> Daniel's Corner, all sorts of stuff. Go there. Uh, and follow me at Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram. Do you want to toss out your social media stuffs? Yeah, I'm just basically on Instagram at Matt Loglin. Uh, and I, it's private, but I'll let you in if you're nice to me and you like oh. not an obvious bot that's like trying to spam me with like, you know, NFTs or something. Uh, <laughs> a lot of crap like that. Like everybody's a Forex, uh, investor. So yeah, just, uh, you can follow me. And, and if I don't approve you, uh, it's cause you might be a bot. Yeah. I'm, I'm convinced that you're just trying to sell me something. <laughs> so, uh, but otherwise, yeah, you can find me there. Awesome. Tony, what about you? I'm at Tony Taxton on Twitter and Instagram. I plan to start, uh, bullying Allison online about the uh, podcast equipment. So look out for that. Uh, and then my podcast Bizarre Albums every Tuesday. Awesome. Thank you again, uh, Matt. This was great. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. You matter. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? We had a good time but now we gotta go 